One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Emily St. John Mandel, author of four novels and a staff writer for the literary online website, The Millions. Her most recent novel is called Station Eleven. It is set both in present day and 20 years into the future after a plague known as Georgia flu wiped out much of humanity and civilization as we know it. The characters in the book are all connected to a famous Hollywood actor who dies on stage performing King Lear the night of the flu outbreak. In what is known as Year 20, two decades after the virus hit, a traveling symphony wanders the land performing Shakespeare. We began the interview talking about the premise of the book and how she joined these seemingly disparate elements of a post-apocalyptic world, Hollywood movie stars, and Shakespeare. I wanted to write something different. So I thought for my fourth novel, I'll write something completely different. And I was thinking it would be a sort of quiet novel without a lot of plot about the life of an actor. I thought maybe in present-day Canada. And one of the things I was really interested in writing about was um, what it means to devote your life to your art. So I thought maybe it'll be kind of a low-budget, uh, hard-scrabble theater troupe performing Shakespeare. You know, in, uh, in a situation like that, it really is all about the art. Nobody's making a lot of money. There's not much possibility of fame. So I was starting to think about that. But at the same time, it's, it's an idea I keep coming back to, that I wanted to write a sort of love letter to this world in which we find ourselves. 
And one way to write about something, of course, is to write about its absence. So that was why I decided to set it in this, partly in this post-apocalyptic future. And as for having the multiple timelines, that's a form that I've been playing with since my first novel, Last Night in Montreal. And it's a way of writing that I really enjoy. There's something kind of exciting about the high wire act of writing these novels that move back and forth in time in a nonlinear fashion and have multiple points of view. I think it can be a really interesting way of telling a story. So I knew pretty early on that I was going to be shifting back and forth between the life of this actor, the present day, and then the life of this traveling Shakespearean theater company in this post-apocalyptic landscape 20 years later. So that was really where it came from, is, uh, just those two ideas. When you talk about the concept of love letter to this world, obviously there's so many beautiful things in this world. Did the impetus, though, to write a love letter to this world come from any sort of sense of the ephemeral nature or where you were in your own life? I don't think I can draw any direct parallel to anything that was going on in my own life at that time. It was more a sense that we're surrounded by such wonders that we take completely for granted. And obviously, there are a lot of things about this world that are absolutely appalling. But we're just surrounded by this level of technology and infrastructure that it seemed to me at any other point in human history would have seemed miraculous. And I mean, just cell phones alone, smartphones, the way you hold most of human knowledge in a device that fits in the palm of your hand. And when you want to call somebody, you just enter a series of numbers, and that results in a signal being sent up to space and then beamed down to anywhere on Earth. It's kind of extraordinary the more you think about it. And it was interesting to me to write about a world where all of that is stripped away. Which in a way is sort of similar to the Shakespearean world because Absolutely. it was so much smaller. It was much smaller, yeah. And that kind of parallels something else that was really interesting to think about as I was writing this book, which was just how local our world would become without all of the telecommunications technology that we take for completely for granted. And yeah, the parallels with Shakespeare's world were, were so interesting to think about as I was writing this book. You know, and the first thing that came to mind is just the obvious parallel between what theater would have looked like in his world and what it looked like in my post-apocalyptic fictional world, which is that in his time, theater was, of course, so often a matter of these small traveling companies moving from town to town, you know, performing by candlelight. And I really... I liked the symmetry of writing about a world where such a company might again set out on the road, the age of electricity having come and gone. So it was interesting to think about that. And then also something more subtle that I hadn't previously considered, which was the extent to which Shakespeare's life and time were marked by the episodes of bubonic plague that swept over England again and again. Um, I go into this in the book a little bit, but... You know, he was the third born to his parents, but the first to survive infancy. Um, three of his siblings died young. They were probable plague victims. He lost his only son, most likely to plague. Um, Hamna died at 11 and left behind a twin. And an interesting thing is that you see echoes of those experiences, or excuse me, I guess the shadows of the shadow of the plague uh, in his work. And sometimes it's really explicit, like when um, King Lear compares one of his daughters to a plague sore. But then there are also more subtle moments when I feel like it comes through. Um, I find myself thinking about that scene toward the beginning of Hamlet, when uh, Hamlet meets the ghost of his father on a parapet. So the ghost of Hamlet's father is describing his untimely death to his son. 
and I'm paraphrasing slightly, but the words he uses are to the effect of a poison that ran swift as quicksilver through his body. And in the context of that time and place where they were so marked by the plague, it's so easy to imagine a quicksilver contagion doing the same. So Hamlet stands on one side of death, his father on the other, a toxicant between them. And as Shakespeare writes those words, his son Hamnet has been dead for less than four years, which is kind of heartbreaking and fascinating to consider. So yeah, there were just there were some really interesting parallels between Elizabethan England and this post-pandemic world. Yeah, I read also that, you know, when you were thinking about this post-apocalyptic world, what would survive and that Shakespeare was one of the most beautiful things that would survive. And I was thinking about how even today, like Shakespeare's hundreds and hundreds of years old, and that's the thing we still go to. There were probably other playwrights um, who would have held our attention or who would have held the attention of, uh, of people 20 years after this societal collapse. But Shakespeare was so singular, you know, just the way he changed the language alone. There are so many phrases we use every day that come from his plays, like disappearing into thin air with Shakespeare or beyond the shadow of a doubt. You know, all of these common phrases and even words that he invented. So I think he had kind of an unprecedented effect on the language. He was just an incredible talent. And it, it partly, I guess you could say it partly comes back to, um, you know, the question of, of what survives through time. I mean, there may have been other playwrights who were that good, who we just don't know about. Yeah, it did seem to me that if we were thinking about what was best about this world, that um, the plays of William Shakespeare might, might be among those things. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Emily St. John Mandel, author of Station Eleven. In the scenes in your book that are post-apocalyptic, they take place 20 years after the flu, so there is not a sense of the immediate terror of the breakdown of civilization, but rather the characters in your book are rebuilding their lives and finding their humanity in this new world two decades after the horror. You know, one of the criticisms of the book that I've read a few times is that it's too pleasant as a post-apocalyptic scenario. And I think what that criticism ignores is the timing. Of, the, of my post-apocalyptic segments. Um, you know, I assume that in the immediate aftermath of a complete societal breakdown, that it would be horror and mayhem and chaos, and it would just be unspeakable. And I feel like that ground has been really well covered by other writers. Um, you know, particularly books like Cormac McCarthy's The Road is one that I always come back to, and I love that book. Um, it was really important to me not to write it as I was, as I was writing this book. I I just wasn't that interested in writing a horror novel, um, which I think is really what a book set in an immediate aftermath uh, really is. You know, it's horrific. To me, it was more interesting to think about the post in the post-apocalyptic, um, to think about what comes next 15 or 20 years later, because my assumption is that the conditions of chaos and mayhem probably wouldn't last forever everywhere on Earth. I think that eventually some people would get a little tired of that lifestyle and would start to, to find a way to live a little bit more harmoniously. You know, I think that most people on Earth really just want to be left alone and raise their families and do something that's meaningful to them. So that, that was what I was thinking about, is what kind of a world and what kind of a culture would start to emerge after the chaos, you know, 15 or 20 years out. And it seemed to me at least possible that by then, after 15 or 20 years, 
there might be some receptivity to a traveling theater company, an orchestra. The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors in people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, we'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She was in pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to Season 2 wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. We talked earlier about Shakespeare and the world that he inhabited. And in your world, after the flu, 20 years later, there's the traveling symphony that goes around and performs Shakespeare. And I'm wondering if you thought about this because you find that there's some salvation in art and entertainment and theater, or is it just for fun? Tell me a little bit more about this element in your novel. There's a quote in this book that I stole from Star Trek Voyager, uh, Survival is Insufficient. And it's from an episode that I saw, I think it aired in um, September of 1999. And it just struck me as a very, a very elegant expression of something I believe to be true that touches on what you're asking, which is that not theater um, specifically, but the arts in general do seem to have some importance to us uh, as a species. And you see it in any of the most desperate places on earth. Um, people play music in refugee camps. They uh, they put on plays in war zones. So there's something in us that wants more than mere survival. That wants some kind of, I guess you could call it grace. And I think that's something that the arts can provide. They they satisfy that hunger in us, whatever it is, that wants something more than just food and shelter. That was really part of what I was thinking with uh, with this traveling company afterward. Um, you know, survival is never enough. They're they're bringing art and music and a little grace to these to these communities of very hardworking people. This troupe was traveling around performing Shakespeare, but they were also trying to survive as they moved through the world. They hunted when they could. They would go through old homes if they had found maybe a, a subdivision or a neighborhood and look through the houses for things they need from costumes to props to food. Mm-hmm. And um, I know that you read a lot of survivalist blogs in your research. Tell me about the things that you found there and what do you think you learned from that? And also, did that scare you at all about some of the people that are out there and their beliefs? It did scare me a bit, yeah. You uh, you know intellectually that there are people out there who are completely alienated from society, heavily armed and prepared to live in the absence of uh, of any conventional ideas about country or government or civilization. 
that it is a little bit disturbing to find yourself um, on their forums, you know, reading about, uh, you know, their plans to take the four kids and move off the grid into rural Tennessee and uh, hunt their own food. Um, and it's it was disturbing because, you know, these are people who who would absolutely stand a much better chance than, than I would um, of surviving some theoretical catastrophic event. But they're living in the future, and it's a, it's a horrible imaginary future. They're, it seemed to me that nothing about their lives was really taking place in the present. It was all about preparation for a theoretical event, which, which struck me as kind of a sad way to live. Um, and, you know, if, if living that way brings them happiness and they enjoy it, then, you know, good for them. But, yeah, it was a bit disturbing. Those, those forums were good for getting some sense of what, of what life might look like, just the practicalities of living off the grid, um, making your own soap, purifying drinking water, that sort of thing. So, yeah, it was useful in that sense, but uh, I wouldn't recommend the experience. One of the elements of your story, aside from the traveling troops, and then you have another character who forms a community and falls in love and has a child and they grow their own food. And instead of wandering, they sort of stay put, which is another way to approach a post-apocalyptic world where you have to recreate civilization again. But there was a presence of evil in the world. There was a prophet who instilled fear in those on the road and this prophet had a religious component, and it just sort of struck me that the main evil in the book had to do with religion. The prophet is actually a character for whom I have some sympathy. You know, he is the villain of the book, but I saw him as being horrifically damaged, as having been out on the road and gone through unbearable, unsurvivable, psychically speaking, experiences as a child. He is a, uh, a religious figure in the sense that cult leaders are religious figures. You know, it's an absolute perversion of Christianity in this case, or Christianity as I understand it. And he really just struck me as the kind of figure who I think would emerge in conditions of complete societal breakdown. And what we see in the present day is that in the most lawless places on earth um, are the places where central government is weakest. You know, you take, for example, the borderlands between Pakistan and Afghanistan. That's where really extremist religion tends to thrive. And I saw the prophet as the kind of character who I think would emerge in a complete vacuum, you know, in, in the sudden shocking absence of any kind of government or central authority. He's charismatic. Um, he seems to offer answers uh, in the way that some extremist religious people can. Um, no, his his stance is kind of, we were saved from this calamity because we were pure. And I think that some people, especially some very traumatized people after an event like this, would be somewhat susceptible to that kind of explanation. Because I think that people are generally really scared of chaos, you know, understandably. Um, I think for some people, it's more comforting to think, well, this happened for a reason, and the reason was X instead of this just happened. A flu came and everything ended. So that's what I was thinking about there. And I tried to counterbalance the negativity of his religiosity with August, who's one of my favorite characters in the novel. And August is someone who has a sort of quiet spirituality. Um, he, uh, you know, he loots houses along with other members of the traveling symphony. He does what he has to to survive, but he says a prayer over the dead whenever he encounters them. And there was something kind of quiet and meditative and and serene about that, that that I tried to bring out a little bit to, to counterbalance the prophet. 
You're listening to First Draft on Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Emily St. John Mandel, author of Station Eleven. Some of the action in year 20 takes place in the Severn City Airport, which seems to be in or around Michigan at the end of a lake. And it's a place where some people got stuck when the flu hit, but it also becomes a sort of mecca or promised land that the actors and others hear about on the road. So the members of the symphony head there when things get really bad for them. The people who have been living at the airport start a museum of relics of the world before the flu took over. Can you talk about the concept of the museum and some of the things that were on display? It seemed to me that there would just be a sort of natural human instinct to try to preserve some of these relics. And by relics, I mean things like your iPhone. Like, What do you do with that? Once there's no more electricity, you can't charge it anymore. Um, the, cell, the cellular phone system's gone down anyway. You have this object, and it's the last one of its kind you're ever going to see. You don't want to just throw it out, but at the same time, it's completely useless. So it seemed to me that maybe there'd be some instinct to start to collect those objects of the vanished world, these relics. And, you know, in the yeah, the airport environment, you have a lot of space, obviously, in an airport. And a lot of, um, in this particular book, you know, a few of the people in the airport are kind of, the kind of people who go to museums, you know, they're culturally engaged and aware. And they have some time on their hands, especially in the first few days when they think they might still be rescued and they're kind of waiting around, hoping for the National Guard to show up. So they were characters who I thought might be interested in the museum. And, yeah, so it was the characters kind of dovetailing with what I think would be a human instinct to preserve these these useless but interesting artifacts from our time. So as you were writing this, what was the most challenging part for you? I think just putting the book together in a cohesive way. Now, there are just so many moving parts with all of these, the different timelines, the different points of view. What I ended up doing, which I would recommend to writers who are writing this kind of book, is I made a map of the book in Excel. It was a spreadsheet. And then I had all of, uh, I had each chapter, you know, just a line about each, um, the page counts for each section. And it allowed me to kind of look at an overview of the book in a unified way. And you could spot problems. You know, it's like, if I have, uh, you know, a mention of Jeevan, one of the characters in the book, on page 20, and then you don't see him again until page 200, then as a reader, you'll have forgotten who he is. So, you know, let's put in another Jeevan chapter in between those two points. Let's find a way to mention him in another chapter in there sometime, somewhere. So little adjustments along those lines to try to make it as cohesive as possible. Um, I think I'm going to start mapping all my books in Excel. It seems really useful. Did you find it challenging at all because you have so many characters and some of your chapters are quite short to balance the action and the movement with the characters inner life and their yearning? Absolutely. I did. Yeah. Um, I'm always, I'm always trying to, to, you know, to write literary fiction, which is so hard to define, but let's say fiction with, with a high emphasis on character development and, you know, three-dimensionality in characters um, and language. And I'm always trying to balance that with as much propulsion as I can possibly get in the plot. Uh, for me, for me, my ideal of the perfect novel is um, The Secret History by Donna Tartt, which is so beautifully written and also such a page-turner. And that's really what I'm always working toward, what I aspire to as a writer. So yeah, it is difficult to balance. You know, you'll in the first draft you'll inevitably have sections that are just way too slow, and then the action picks up again too quickly. And trying to get a more or less consistent build, so it 
you know, slowly becomes more and more propulsive as the book goes on. That is a real challenge. So do you have formal training in writing? I, I read that you were a dancer most of your life and you studied dance in college. And then when you didn't want to dance anymore, you just thought of taking up writing. Yeah, I have no formal training whatsoever, but I've been writing all my life. I was homeschooled as a child, and one of the very few requirements of the curriculum was that I had to write something every day. I always wrote just as a hobby and didn't take it at all seriously and didn't think much of it. And then there was a period of time when I was in my very early 20s, say 21, 22, when I was kind of burned out with dancing, and I started to think about writing as something that might emerge to take the place of dance. And started to take it a bit more seriously and, uh, and began what became my first novel, Last Night in Montreal. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Emily St. John Mandel, author of Station Eleven. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yeah, absolutely. This is a passage from Raymond Chandler. Um, he had an essay called The Simple Art of Murder that was published in the Atlantic Monthly in August of 1944. And the essay, you know, it's often quoted out of context, which is actually more or less what I'm about to do. But in context, he's talking about the challenges of writing detective fiction. And he writes about the world of detective fiction, you know, the noir world of mean streets and shady characters and, uh, and cynicism and darkness. And then he contrasts that with a sort of ideal of what the detective protagonist should be in a detective novel. And what he writes is, and I quote, In everything that can be called art, there is a quality of redemption. It may be pure tragedy, if it is high tragedy, and it may be pity and irony, and it may be the raucous laughter of the strong man. But down these mean streets, a man must go who is not himself mean, who is neither tarnished nor afraid. The detective in this kind of story must be such a man. And for me, the line that I come back to is the second to last, that down these mean streets, the man must go who is not himself mean, who is neither tarnished nor afraid. And that is a fairly elegant summary of what I'm trying to create in a narrator, or in a protagonist, I should say. That it's, you know, you want a character who's still human, but but also not so horrible that you can't relate to them or that you don't care what happens to them. You know, so to put it in his language, um, tarnished but not so tarnished that they're completely unsympathetic, or if they're afraid, they can't be so afraid that they're paralyzed from action. So that's, that's a, uh, I guess you could say a set of parameters for creating a character that's, that's influenced me a lot and that I keep coming back to in my work. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And how about something that you wrote that maybe it was something that was hard to write or something that changed from your first draft or something you feel you succeeded at? Sure. Um, you know, as I was preparing for this interview and thinking about this question, I kept coming back to the first paragraph of the book, which changed completely. Um, should I read you the original or the final version or both? You could read both. 
Okay, sure. So here's the original. This is the first paragraph of Station Eleven from, I guess it would have been late 2011 when I first started writing the book. Okay, here goes. The king was 51 years old, and there were flowers in his hair. He stood in a pool of blue light, unmoored, reaching for the child actresses playing hallucinations of his daughters as they flitted here and there in the shadows and half-light. His name was Arthur Leander. He had waited all his life to play Lear. This was Act Four, a winter night in the Royal Elgin Theatre in Toronto, just before the end of everything. And this was when it happened. He reached for the young Cordelia. There was a change in his face. He stepped back and then stumbled, flailing a little. His hand struck a column in the set, and he held it to his chest with a strange little gasp. So there's a lot going on there. You know, you, you meet the actor, um, you get some intimation that this is right before the end of everything, and then he has a heart attack in the first paragraph. It just seemed like a lot of information. Um, so that was the very first, uh, the first version. And then the final version, a few of the same phrases, but I think it's simpler and more coherent. Um, it goes like this. The king stood in a pool of blue light, unmoored. This was Act Four of King Lear, a winter night at the Elegant Theater in Toronto. Earlier in the evening, three little girls had played a clapping game on stage as the audience entered, childhood versions of Lear's daughters, and now they'd returned as hallucinations in the mad scene. The king stumbled and reached for them as they flitted here and there in the shadows. His name was Arthur Leander. He was 51 years old, and there were flowers in his hair. So in that final version, I've removed both the impending apocalypse and the heart attack. You know, it's just keep it simple, introduce the character, uh, give some sense of the production. And, and that was, God, I must have rewritten that first chapter and that paragraph in particular a um, hundred times. It just went over and over and over. So where do you write? Um, my favorite place to write is at home. I have a really great home office. I, I bought a new desk this year, and I really like it. Uh, I actually bought a treadmill desk, which has been nice, because I, I find I don't really have time to go to the gym. and I like to walk slowly and work at the same time. So that's my ideal, is to be at home. But I've tried not to be too precious about where I write. You know, you encounter some writers who are like, I need a particular pen and a particular thickness of paper and a particular kind of light in a particular location with earplugs and a cat. You know, it's very specific. Um, I'll write in the subway on the way to and from my day job. I'll write at a cafe table if I have an hour to kill between appointments in the same neighborhood. So I try to be flexible about it and just write whenever I have the opportunity. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I sort of have the opposite problem, to tell you the truth. I wish I could spend more time writing. You know, having a day job and I had a very long book tour for Station Eleven, which was wonderful. I'm so grateful to have had that opportunity. But... It has eaten into time that I would otherwise be using to write. So, yeah, I um, my problem these days is more trying to get to writing than get away from it. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My husband. He's a writer, too. It's really nice having somebody in-house. Um, what I try to do is show each of my novels to three friends who are also writers before I send it to my agent. And it's interesting. You know, my... Um, a previous editor of mine at the small press that published my first three novels had a really wonderful phrase for what happens when you've been working on a manuscript for two or three years. He said, you just get snowblind. You know, and he's right. You, you get to a point where you just don't see even the most glaring mistakes, and you really need a fresh, a fresh look at it. So, 
yeah, so I'll show it to my husband and a couple of friends who are also writers. And then they always have really valuable notes. And I'll revise again based on those notes and then send it to my agent. And how have you dealt with rejection? Uh, quietly. <laughs> um, I think, you know, we all experience rejection as, as writers. And it's really important to not talk about that on social media, not complain about it. Um, I've seen a lot of writers get into trouble that way. Um, you know, you stew quietly, you vent to your husband and friends, you avoid anything public about it. It's, that's really been a strategy for me. And what is your favorite word? You know, I was agonizing over this as I was trying to prepare it. I don't think I can pick a favorite. Um, there's some words that I love the sound of, like chime. I think that's beautiful. Um, but yeah, it depends on the context. It's, it's hard to pick just one. 